Welcome to the DSS podcast, Our Common Thread. On this podcast, we will discuss initiatives going on at the department and get to know leaders and thought makers within the agency. We'll look at what thread ties us together as members of the social services family and how we can use our work to empower Missourians to build safe, healthy, and productive lives. I am sitting here with Kim Evans, the director of our Family Support Division. So, um, you know, as we kind of talked about before, this is really just an opportunity for us to sit down and um, for you to share with the department, um, our whole DSS team, kind of what your why is and um, why you're passionate or ca- and care about the work that we do at social services. Obviously, you kind of grew up with the agency um, and, and have spent a lot of years dedicated to this work. So why don't you just kind of start by sharing how you got your start with social services? Okay, sure. You know, uh, when I took my position, I was in Carter County, which is in Van Buren down in the Mark Twain Forest. You know, Um, that county is a very small county. Uh, There was not a lot of jobs that were available, but I knew it was a good job. And my dad said, get on with the state. My dad worked for MoDOT for years, and he said, you need to get on with the state. So I had the opportunity to do that. Um, Luckily, I knew what I was getting myself into because my husband was already working with the state. So I knew what casework was about. There were four other eligibility specialists in the office with me, and those ladies were tenured. They were been mm. there 20 plus years, and they let me know I had to <laughs> toe the line when I came in. This is what my expectations were. Um, but, you know, it's always been something that's been gratifying to me. Um, you know, I've had the families. There's always those families I remember that I've been able to help. And the more that I worked with Family Support Division, the just the deeper the desire to help folks. And as I've moved up through the ranks, you know, I, I went to supervisor. I was a self-sufficiency case manager for back in the day when we dealt, uh, worked w- really closely with the families who were receiving TANF, you know, and working, you know, just seeing the progress that you can make with the families where they can become self-sufficient. That that was just something that just sort of grew in me as, as I moved forward. And it, it's just somewhat something that's always stayed with me. I can't imagine doing anything else in my life. This is... I feel like this is my calling. Daryl, thank you for joining us today on uh, our common thread. So if you just want to go ahead and start by introducing yourself, um, we'll start there. Oh, thank you, Caitlin. My name is Daryl Missy. I'm the director of Children's Division. Awesome. So really today is just a bit of an intro. So we're going to be using um, our whys to introduce our senior leadership to um, our our entire DSS family. So really my ask today, and I've heard this story a couple times, and I think it's a really interesting and impactful story. If you could just tell us, you know, maybe provide a little bit of your background and then tell us why you're passionate about the work you do. Sure. I, I'd be glad to do that. So I was, uh, I wanted to be a trial attorney and I was practicing law across the street from the Jefferson County courthouse and who were coming to me uh, with 
all of these struggling families who were coming out of juvenile court after having been treated not well, and I would go over there and try to help them, and it, it, was, it was very difficult. And over the course of 10 years, and I was appointed to represent a lot of these kids, and, uh, and so I was representing kids, and I was representing parents, and ultimately I just was committed to the idea that this needed to be better, uh, and I ended up running for judge. And all that, I think, was inspired more than anything else by my own family. Because when I, when I grew up, uh, my mom had a really serious form of bipolar disorder. She had a, a mental illness. And by the way, she was loving and terrific and wonderful and brilliant. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it. so my, my grandfather actually was bipolar. And I would have never known it except for getting older and someone telling me. Because he was, um, you know, other than the lithium he was on and, right. you know, him be having issues with bleeding a lot, you know, he, he was the greatest grandfather, you know, I could have ever dreamed of. So I can definitely appreciate that, you know, that's, that's living with someone with a disease that sounds scary doesn't always mean what people think it means. Right. And I think, I I think the, the, the time period that really impacted me the most was when I was seven because my, my baby sister had just been born. And uh, this is the 1970s now. So, you know, the med- tr- medical treatment, psychiatric treatment was very different then. Uh, and my mom in, in that postpartum world when her hormones were crashing, she became completely psychotic. I mean, it became very difficult things that people would see as very scary. It was very horrible. So my, my mom was seeing things that weren't there, hearing things that weren't there, saying things that made no sense. And she was amazing. I mean, she had taught us to read before we got to school. I mean, she was an amazing amazing person and but she she'd come completely apart and my dad who was just a, the a salt of the earth just hard working uh you know blue collar worker trying to grapple with this thing that was happening to us and i you know and the condition of the house became bad and mom was doing scary things and it became very difficult and ultimately what happened was my mom went away to a mental hospital my grandmother moved in and cleaned the house and 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 all kinds of supports came around us and ultimately our you know our neighborhood the school community ultimately our faith community really uh, came around us and medicine got better that changed a lot too the lithium my mom was mm-hmm. on lithium uh, ultimately the lithium destroyed my mom's kidneys uh, and uh, she ended up dying of kidney failure when she was 72. And as that was happening, she said, oh, don't be sad. That's a deal I would take. I would take. You know, I, you tell me when I'm 29 that if I take this pill all my life, I can raise my children and uh, see nine grandchildren and live this full of a life, and then I'll die of kidney failure when I'm 72. Deal. You know, she, she, was, uh, she was an amazing person. But when I saw these families... And I saw what they were really dealing with. You know, we, we hear about the, the, the things that make the news, the things that are, are, you know, dramatic are those abuse cases, and we all see them, and they're tragic, and they're terrible. But what fuels a lot of this system isn't that. But what fuels a lot of this system is, is what we call neglect, which is often poverty and addiction and mental illness. And I saw so many cases come into my room that looked just like my family. They looked just like my childhood family. And I thought... If you had come to my house in March you know, of 1974, I would have been removed. And how would my family, how would my family have reacted to the way we deal with this? And I think it would have destroyed us. I mean, I always thought that. So I thought, we, you know, when I was on, when I was a, a lawyer and when I was on the bench, I was advocating for helping people to the degree we can. Keep people safe because we have to and then help them because we need to and uh, and do what we can for people. And so, you know, I think about my family and what we did. It was a safety plan. 
You know, mom went away to a mental hospital and grandma's going to move in. It's the kind of solutions, the kind of problem solving that I see people in the field doing when they're not being judgmental, when they're not reacting based on fear, but they're reacting based on what we know, uh, trauma informed, uh, and, uh, uh, just it's common sense practices to help people. Because I'll tell you what, when I was a kid, if you'd have taken me out of that house, I would have, I know how I would have reacted to that. And, and oh, by the way, you wouldn't have placed me with my grandparents either, Caitlin, because my, neither of them would have been licensable because they lived in such small little places. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I, I've really, my why people ask me why I do this. And I think Leroy and Diane Missy, I mean, those two were the best parents ever, and we were in a spot where they couldn't be, and, you know, what they needed was help, and we got help, but I'm, I'm committed to you know, working with our communities and everybody else to help everybody that we can. Well, I mean, that's certainly a very powerful and very personal story. So I appreciate you, you sharing that. Um, I, that's, that's really all we were trying to get into today, but certainly always open it up for you if there's, if there's anything else you want to add. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I just, you know, while we're here, I think what I, I'd like to say is a word of thanks to everyone who's made it possible for us to, to do this work, you know, for uh, the people, you know, I, I've gone around the circuits and talked to our people and their hearts are in such the right place to, to try to help people. And, uh, and community partners that we have, we've been doing these community meetings and people in the courts and in, in, uh, in local leadership of, uh, governments and the faith community that are coming around us. I just want to say thanks to everybody because we're, we're, we're really making progress on, uh, becoming a, a very proactive and helpful, uh, agency and I'm, I'm inspired by it. So I just thank everybody for all they do. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think one thing I want to mention, um, you know, what you've kind of described, at least what I'm hearing is, is really trying to build up that sense of community around child welfare. um, And how do we support families that are having a difficult time? And as the Department of Social Services, a lot of those um, structured government supports um, lie within our department. And I think oftentimes we forget how related our work is and how by supporting and working hard at what we do, we are supporting these um, facets of our department that are maybe very different than the work we do. And that's, you know, the whole point I'm trying to get at with this podcast is talking about how connected our work is to one another. So, you know, I think of, you know, some of the things you identified as challenges like substance abuse treatment, um, like, you know, some, some, instances that contribute to neglect, maybe food insecurity, housing insecurity. Um, it could be that uh, a, a family, a caregiver might need additional education in order to provide the level of support. Um, and, and a lot of those supports are in our department. And um, we can build um, a system that is supportive of families. Obviously, we need those community partners and we need those outside supports. I don't think government is ever the entire solution, but we can be a big part of it. And even in our department, um, you know, making sure that the the folks have access to their SNAP benefits can be really impactful right. in keeping a family stable, making sure that kids have access to, to Medicaid coverage that their parents, you know, now that we have expansion, can access some of those um, treatment services. Um, I think that 
is really just something that I want to emphasize and that I'm trying to pull together each in each podcast episode is how connected we are within our department and how our work supports each other. I think that's exactly right. And we've had, I've had this conversation with Kim, Kim Evans, you know, because the family support division, uh, as we move toward prevention, as we move toward trying to help people and prevent the need, either prevent what we would consider abuse or neglect or uh, to prevent the need to remove a child, the things that she has in, in the family support division, the work that they do is going to be critical to that. And that's why I'm very excited about our, our prevention workers coming on, because I think in a lot of ways they're going to act as the bridge for that. You know, yeah. they're going to be the people who like, well, I know what is available in, in the department and I know what you need. And, and the fact that we have them sitting out there locally and, oh, by the way, I also know where all the food banks are. I know where the clothing banks sure. are. I know that I know that that organization has this service and that church does this thing and and really be able to pull together and and, and the resources inside that own their own family, you know, pull that together. I think all together uh, when I, I think you're exactly right, the Department of Social Services, it is we are in it together. Uh, at working to help these people uh, to to uh, have uh, healthy and, and and productive good lives, yeah. and so we're in it together. And I'm just excited. I'm excited that you're doing the podcast. It's a lot of fun. I love podcasts. Uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And I, I think um, you know, hearing from uh, all of our colleagues here and how we work together, I think is a really great thing. So thank you for doing it. Taking a quick break from this episode to give you some important updates going on in the department. The DSS Swag Shop will be open from February 15th through March 15th, so be sure to watch your inbox for that link. The shop will feature apparel, tumblers, hats, and book bags. Thank you to everyone who took the quarterly Pulse survey. Our response rate for the department was 54%, which is up 10% from last year around this time. Be on the lookout for future chances to take the survey and be sure to encourage your team members to do so also. Todd, thanks for joining me. If you wouldn't mind, just go ahead and start by introducing yourself. Um, and then if you want to give a little bit of maybe your background before you join the Department of Social Services, that'd be great. Sure. Todd Richardson. I'm the director of MHD or the Mo Health Net Division. So we are Missouri's single state Medicaid agency. We have responsibility over you know, a good bit of the Medicaid program here uh, in Missouri. Prior to joining the department, uh, I had the opportunity to serve eight years in the General Assembly, um, representing my hometown of Popper Bluff, um, and then joined the department in the fall of 2018. Awesome. So, you know, just to give you a little bit of background about what we're trying to do with this podcast, the idea is, you know, at the Department of Social Services, we know we're a very mission-driven organization, no matter what function you're serving in the department. And so we're trying to really use this as a platform to get in deeper on some of the work that we're doing across the department and how that work not only impacts maybe the division that's leading it, but impacts across the agency. And Medicaid is a huge piece of what ties us together. And so kind of our kickoff for this podcast is to sit down with department leadership and talk about their individual whys. And, um, you know, as a mission-driven organization, we recognize that that's what drives a lot of us is why we're doing it and a passion for the work. So if you wouldn't mind, just kind of tell us a little bit about why, you know, why you decided to join social services after leading the legislature? Yeah, well, Medicaid is such a big part of our, our state government. It's the largest program uh, in the state financially, and it has a tremendous impact on so many Missourians, 
Right now, um, we have about 1.4 million Missourians who are, are on Medicaid. And obviously, a, a program with that, uh, that kind of reach has the opportunity to have a tremendous impact uh, on, on our state, in addition to the impact it has for our providers um, who are financially relying on Medicaid to support and sustain their practices. Um, so obviously, that opportunity to have an impact on a program of that scale was, was really interesting to me. But I, I think it comes back, you know, we talk at MoHealthNet a lot about our vision statement, and it is that together uh, we want to build a best-in-class Medicaid program that provides for the needs of Missouri's most vulnerable in a way that's financially sustainable. And so our why is really those the three components of that vision statement. First, we want to be best-in-class. We want to be aspirational about what we do. There's no reason that we can't uh, have a best-in-class Medicaid program. We don't want to be one that's you know just as good as Kansas or not quite as bad as Illinois. Always better than Kansas. That's right. And so we want to be we want to be best in class and be aspirational in that. Right in the center of our vision statement is to provide for the needs of Missouri's most vulnerable. That's the reason that Medicaid exists. It's core and central to the themes of the entire Department of Social Services and really our connection to that to that social work uh, part of the department. And then the last is to do so in a way that's financially sustainable. It's one of the state's largest programs. It's incumbent upon us to make sure that we have the financial resources uh, to be able to run the program and that, that our program isn't putting a drain on, on other state resources. Um, so that, that's really front and center for how we think about the why. Yeah, and um, it might be helpful for you know folks who aren't in MoHealthNet because while you guys are the biggest part of our budget at the department, you're not the biggest staff-wise. Right. So can you um, kind of give an idea of what your budget is versus maybe, you know, like the overall state budget. Cause it's a, it's a big chunk of it. Granted, a lot of that's federal funding, but I just think it kind of puts in perspective. Yeah. If you think about it, uh, just to put it in, in general terms, uh, about a quarter of our state's general revenue goes to fund our Medicaid operation. And, you know, our team at MoHealthNet is about 225 uh, folks. We're, a, we're, you know, on Department of Social Services. Lean scale, and mean. We're, we're a lean and mean, <laughs> small, small and mighty kind of team. But it's really important work um, when you balance that against the, the the scale of the resources. And our team is mindful of the fact that, you know, the decisions that we make and the choices we make um, have the opportunity to affect what kind of resources are available for the rest of state government. But we've tried to approach this question of financial sustainability not by trying to cut services or limited limit services to our participants, because we know how important they are, but really to focus on this central theme that the healthier we make Missourians, the more uh, we're able to improve their health outcomes, the the more financially sustainable the program um, is. And so um, I couldn't be prouder of the opportunity to get to work with the team I get to work with at MoHealthNet. Um, and, you know, I've seen the quality of their work, you know, day in and day out. And I know it's certainly reflective of the quality of the team we've got more broadly at, at the Department of Social Services. Yeah, I've, I've heard you and Robert both use the phrase, you know, paying for people to be well instead of paying for people to be sick. And I think that's just really an important message and, um, you know, trying to push back on some of the misconceptions about what being a government funded healthcare program looks like. That's exactly right. And, you know, too, too often um, we we are in the sick care business and not in the healthcare business, as our team likes to say. And so it's how do we make the program operate in such a way that we're really focused on improving those health outcomes and, and, and doing, and in doing so, you know, work on that financial sustainability piece. Welcome, Dale. 
Uh, Caitlin Whaley here sitting down with Dale Carr, the rector of our Medicaid, uh, Missouri Medicaid Audit and Compliance Unit. So um, a group that really focuses on the integrity of our Medicaid program and our, um, our providers. So Dale, thanks for joining us today. This is really just an opportunity for um, me to sit down with some of the senior leadership here at our department and for you to share with our DSS team members why um, you do the work that you do and why you're passionate about it. Um, you know, our podcast is really about uh, what connects us as people who work at the Department of Social Services and are passionate about um, our work. And um, so if you wouldn't mind, maybe just tell us a little bit about how you got started with social services um, and and why, why you do what you do. Well, uh, thank you, Caitlin. Um, so I have a background in um, uh, law enforcement primarily. I was a, a street police officer for about eight years. I was a military special agent in the Coast Guard for about 20 years um, and worked with the U.S. Attorney's Office and such like that before uh, my wife and I came to Missouri. And it just so happened that when I was coming to Missouri or when we arrived here that they were just starting up this new unit that was, uh, you know, MMAC, basically. They took people from all th uh, th three different agencies, mental health, uh, health and senior services, and MoHealthNet, and created one unit, uh, which would be um, the primary um, enrollment uh, unit, and then uh, all of the audits would be done out of a single unit and any investigations and stuff. And I just happened to arrive at the right time and uh, started as an investigator with the uh, with the unit. And uh, that's really what got me rolling there. Yeah. And so, so just to clarify, the investigations that you guys do are more on the provider side. So um, working with um, Mufuku in the attorney general's office and looking into um, fraud or billing inaccuracies that are on the provider side, not on the participants side, correct? Absolutely. So we, um, we're primarily concentrated on the providers. Um, we occasionally will have uh, situations with uh, the Medicaid participants were somehow involved in the scheme. And so the attorney general's office will either deal with that or we're actually my investigators are co-located with the DSS uh, Welfare Investigations Unit, which do the participant fraud. And so it's all it's all kind of coordinated behind the scenes. Awesome. So um, obviously you've been with MAC for quite a few years. So what is what do you find fulfilling or what do you enjoy about working at MAC? So um, the thing that it, when I when I first came here and I first saw MAC and I saw Medicaid fraud, I didn't have any experience in Medicaid, but I did a lot of reading about it very quickly. And you know what I what I was um, what I learned was is is that um, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of fraud in the Medicaid program uh, and there's a lot of dollars that are not getting you know to where they where they should be going and and that um, good program integrity units that they can. Um, you know, for every dollar we spend on our unit that we can bring back eight, nine, ten, twelve dollars um, in recovered dollars, which once we get that back into the system, you know, every million dollars that we recover is another million dollars that Mo HealthNet has to, you know, to, to give to other um, providers to take care of other participants for needed services um, or possibly uh, get another new program, you know, off the ground. So that's, you know, that's a tremendous uh, asset to the uh, program there. Um, 
we do um, we do all the we have seventy three thousand uh, providers right now enrolled with the Missouri Medicaid program. So we do all the enrollments of them and keeping all their enrollment information straight. And then we have sixty five different provider types that we enroll, and so we do um, we do audits of all of those different groups. And then if we get if we find during an audit that it looks like there's fraudulent billing there, then that's when it goes over to the investigators to do a deep dive and some interviews and uh, subpoena some records and such like that. Um, um, and then if we if we build a good fraud case, then we'll send it over to the attorney general's office to prosecute it out. Yeah. And, you know, when you're talking about in just Missouri, a, a 10, 11, 13 billion dollar program, when you're talking about the Medicaid program, that's that's a lot of of to oversee. And that's a lot of opportunity for um, dollars to to go missing. So it's it's so important that we have strong integrity in that program. Because like you mentioned, um, you know, those are those are taxpayer dollars. Those are Missouri taxpayer dollars. Those are federal tax dollars that are going to support um, folks who need those health care services. And we want to make sure that they're going to the right places and to the right people for the right services. Right. I um, I, I just um, you know, you're kind of asking about, you know, what, you know, what drives us, at, you know, at, at MMAC. And I think that we have a, we have about 90 people uh, between all of my folks and all those different areas that we do. But generally, all, our, you know, our, our, our MMAC team members, they're people that are just naturally curious. Um, they're typically, um, you know, they want to be um, kind of like, you know, basically model citizens. I think they're, they're problem solvers. They, uh, um, and, and I think that they have good moral compasses. And I think that that's, you know, as a group, that that's what kind of drives us to, um, you know, try and identify who the bad providers are and to weed them out of the system or even on the front end with our enrollment. Um, the best way to keep fraud from happening is to never let the bad provider in the front door so that they can't bill us right. And so um, I think that's really, you know, kind of our why. I, I've been in uh, public uh, service now in, in some shape or form for 43 years now. And and I think that this is probably as uh, fulfilling um, a job as um, as I've ever had. Um, you know, with this with this unit and and doing what we're doing for you know not only the uh, the citizens here in Missouri, but you know within social services supporting that uh, again whatever is thirteen fifteen billion dollar uh, program. Yeah, well, I really appreciate it, um, Dale. If there any if anything else you want to share, feel free. Otherwise, I think we're good. No, I I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk. I, I'm really proud of my people and uh, really uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today about them. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much. Hi, Frank. Thanks Hi for joining me. Why don't you go ahead and start by just introducing yourself, um, and then if you want to give us uh, just a little bit of your background and um, why you know what you do for the agency, because you're obviously a smaller group, not everyone's familiar, and then just a little bit about you know why you're passionate about this work. Sure. My name is Frank Tennant. I am the director of Missouri State Technical Assistance Team, uh, STAT for short. STAT is a law enforcement agency. Um, I, while I've only been with STAT for eight years, I've been a police officer. I just started my 43rd year, so um, a long time. Basically, STAT, um, we, do, we do a couple different things. First, first thing is we um, administrate the state child fatality review program. Every local jurisdiction is required to have a local panel to review the deaths of children, and all of those data and reports come to us. 
and then we put out uh, an annual report. Um, the focus of that is prevention. It's not necessarily investigative in nature so that we can try to prevent these incidents from ha occurring in the future. Um, the, the flip side, the other side of the coin is the law enforcement operations. We have a tendency of uh, sworn state officers strategically located at different locations around the state. Um, we pro provide specialized support for child homicides, child exploitation, physical abuse, sexual abuse, any, basically anything children. And then uh, the past 18 months to two years, we've kind of gotten into the missing genre. A lot of work trying to get kids back in, back in care or back home where they're safe. Any given day, there's 60 to 80 kids that are missing from care, which in the grand scheme of things with over 12,000 in care, that's not a terrible number, especially when you look at the dynamics of some of these children's background. But we try, they take off for, they run. We don't, we don't get into the dynamics of a runaway or, or such. It's a matter of that they are missing from care, and any child that's not where they should be is at risk. So we try to do that. Um, that's kind of, we've been very successful with that. Um, we kind of set in the middle. Sometimes there is um, some things that get lost in translation between CD workers and law enforcement and juvenile courts, and we're kind of in the middle to act as a liaison to get um, a common language but the ultimate goal is getting that child back where they need to be. That's kind of grown into us now looking at the Highway Patrol missing list, which is over 700, and some of those date back. Working on some of those right now. Yeah, awesome. So, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with a little bit of your background, but why don't you um, tell us why you're passionate about this specific kind of work? Obviously, you guys do some really challenging um, police work, not that all law enforcement work doesn't have its own challenges, but um, specifically you guys take on some really tough cases. So why is the work that you do and leading STAT so important to you? Well, I don't, you know, I've always been a person, you know, I coached ball when I was younger. I, I coached Little League baseball and football and basketball before I ever had my own kids. So kids have always been important to me. Um, and, and I don't like to see them fall through the cracks, for me personally. So for me, that's what's most important. Um, you know, I've, in my 40-something years, I've done a lot of different things. I worked undercover in organized crime. I was a homicide detective. Um, but there is absolutely nothing that gives me more self-satisfaction than getting justice for one of these child victims or getting a kid home that potentially is about to go off a cliff. I mean, I think that's, um, that's a lot, what drives a lot of us that work in this space is, um, you know, keeping kids safe, keeping families safe and, and trying to, um, you know, make that a reality. So what is right now the piece of your work that you feel like is most fulfilling for you? Obviously you guys have taken on more, you've grown a little bit, you're a relatively small group, but you've, um, you've been able to add some additional, um, investigators in the last three years. What's what are you most proud of right now at Stat? I'm most proud of my team. They've they've taken the challenges. We have expanded. Um, probably not in this budget cycle, but the next one, I'm probably going to show up with a, uh, a a want list. And probably uh, if things go like I think they will go, 
I, I won't have any problem asking for a few more people um, just with the missing kids alone, not taking in consideration the, the, the always backlog of child exploitation cases that are out there. You know, we've got people that get online, try to, you know, catch a predator stuff. We do those. We do that a lot. Um, there's, as a cop, there's nothing more fulfilling than the bad guy showing up and, and realizing real quick that, oops, this is not a 12-year-old little boy or a 13-year-old little girl. It's, you know, a 60-plus-year-old broken-down cop that's got a pair of handcuffs for him. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I, I mean, that's really all we want to talk about. Is there anything else you want to you wanna cover while we're here? No. Um, you know, I, I like to throw my motto out there. I, my staff all knows it. Every kid counts. You know, and if and that's my mantra, I no no kids while I'm here, I mean, I, I'm a realist. I know I can't save them all, and we know we can't save them all. But if there's one that's save, savable, we're not going to let it slip through our fingers. Every kid counts. Thank you for listening to Our Common Thread. Join us next time as we continue to discuss the thread that ties us all together here at the Missouri Department of Social Services. Thank you.